All right, welcome back to Ride for Reading Daily. This is episode 99. We're continuing to read High Risers by Ben Austin. We're on the bottom of page 104. The activist Marion Stamps was especially vocal in her criticisms of the mayor. Her community sitter, Tranquility Marksman, sat across the business street from Burns' new apartment, and she had a close relationship with the families in 1150 through 1160 North Sedgwick, the young men even bestowing on her the honorific, quote, Mama Stone, end quote, for the support she given youngsters who later became Cobra Stones. Stamps was a short 35-year-old with a round, expressive face, often framed in oversized oblong glasses. But with her bullhorn voice and intensity, she gave the impression of someone of much larger stature. She was born in Jackson, Mississippi in 1945, and as a girl, she picketed the segregated public library that wouldn't lend her books. Megger Evers lived close by, and the civil rights leader trained her as an organizer. When she was 17, she moved to Chicago, and in 1965, she landed an apartment in the 1230 North Burling Building. Public housing, she said, was, quote, a godsend, a blessing, compared to the slum housing I was living in before. For me, the move to Cabrini Green represented something bigger and better, end quote. It was also a place, she would say, where, quote, social workers question your man and womanhood and think nothing of it. Politicians make promises of jobs and welfare checks for your votes or no jobs and no welfare check if you don't vote the way the precinct captain has dictated. Then we have Chicago's finest, the police who only serve and protect property and property rights, end quote. She blamed the, quote, street organizations, end quote, as well. Quote, the misguided black folks among us who sell dope to our children, who intimidate and force our children into gangs, end quote. All of this compelled her into activism. At Cabrini, she raised five daughters and headed up the Chicago chapter of the Housing Tenants Organization. She ran a program for expectant mothers since the infant mortality rates there were on par with those in the third world. She pressed for a new school to be built in the community once she helped get named for the slave-turned-abolitionist Sojourner Truth, and she despised the idea of Mayor Byrne as a, quote, white savior, end quote, coming to Cabrini-Green to rescue the poor black folk. With the flair for the incendiary, Stamps compared Byrne to the Ku Klux Klan and told news outlets that life at Cabrini-Green with the mayor there was like living in a concentration camp or a South African township under apartheid. Quote, when you are not free enough to speak up or go out of your house, you are already victim to a form of death, end quote, she said. The tensions came to a head at the mayor's, quote, spiritual Easter celebration, end quote, a day-long event held in the third week of Burns' stay at Cabrini. A giant white cross was erected on the Vision Street, and the choir sang along with Byrne that, quote, God's got Cabrini green in his hands, end quote. The event featured a Ferris wheel, men playing the bongos, free cotton candy, and circus rides. Reggie Theus of the Bulls, Chet Lemon, and Minnie Minoso of the White Sox, and members of the Bears and the Chicago Hustle, the Women's Professional Basketball League franchise, all spoke from a stage about hope and revival. Byrne was introduced by one of her officials as, quote, the newest and one of the truest residents of Cabrini-Green, end quote. In her memoir, Byrne says she responded to the event's low turnout by confronting the gangs directly, accusing them of scaring children away from the festivities. Division had become an actual dividing line between the Cobra Stones and the Reds and on the south side of the street and the Disciples and the Whites on the north side. 
Even disciples from the whites and the reds saw each other as rivals. Pleading from the stage, Byrne implored children to go back to their high rises to get their friends since they surely hate to miss out on the free food and games. As the mayor sang an off-key, quote, Easter parade, end quote, protesters waved play cards chanting, quote, we need jobs, not eggs, end quote. Byrne contended that the demonstrators were all gang plants, but they included a range of Cabrini Green tenants and other activists, among them Marion Stamps. Her organization counseled dozens of residents who were evicted when Byrne moved into Cabrini Green, and they managed to reverse almost every single case. Stamp stood alongside members of Slim Coleman's Heart of Uptown Coalition, a group that blamed the mayor's eviction policies for creating tensions between poor blacks and poor whites, many of whom were former Appalachian coal miners who'd moved to Chicago's north side in pursuit of a better life free of black lung disease. Stamp said that the placing of the white cross in their black neighborhood felt like psychological warfare. She pointed out that Byrne managed to employ every convention of the white colonizer subduing a native population, appeasing them with, re with religion, sports, petty entertainments, junk food, and trinkets. At some point, the police decided they'd heard enough. As officers cuffed and hauled the protesters away, a lawyer tried to intervene. Quote, what is he being charged with? End quote, he shouted. Quote, who's the arresting officer? End quote. He was thrown into a paddy wagon as well. All the while, one Cabrini resident shrieked, quote, assassins, end quote. Byrne left on a California vacation the following week, deciding then to end her residency at Cabrini Green. In the 25 days that she lived in an apartment there, only one person had been shot. The crime wave has subsided. Quote, we never will leave Cabrini and neither should anybody else, end quote. Byrne wrote in her final diary entry. The mayor did return to Cabrini Green occasionally, she showed up later that year when two Gabrini teens opened the area's only newsstand. Over the summer, she led the ribbon cutting of a new athletic complex named for Severin and Rosado, the plaque stating, quote, this field is dedicated to all people who wish to live together in brotherly love, end quote. A hundred dignitaries were in attendance, including family members of the slain officers. Byrne came out for a couple of baseball games and her husband coached the team there for a few seasons. McMullen brought children mitts and when the grass went weeks without a cutting, he called the park superintendent to get it done. But Byrne's bump in popularity from the Cabrini move was short-lived. Within a day of her leaving, news outlets were already going with the story of the housing development's intractable problems. Quote, residents say services left with her, end quote. The 16-member security detail set up to guard the lobbies and monitor closed-circuit televisions was disbanded. The CHA said funding dried up. Byrne also undermined the goodwill she garnered with African-Americans. For starters, she refused to get rid of Charles Swibel, who'd been abusing his position as head of the CHA since 1963. Swibel was one of Byrne's biggest fundraisers and closest advisors, and the two of them often rode together in her limo. From 1978 to 1982, nine different reports by auditors and consultants found that the CHA was in shambles. The ninth of these reports was conducted by Oscar Newman, the author of The Defensible Space. Yet Newman concluded Yet Newman concluded that the problems in Chicago went way beyond bad architecture. Quote, in every area we examined, from finance to maintenance, from administration to outside contracting, from staffing to project management, from purchasing to accounting, the CHA was found to be operating in a state of profound confusion and disarray. No one seems to be minding the store. 
What's more, no one seems genuinely to care, end quote. By then, each housing development in Chicago had an average backlog of a thousand unfilled repair requests. A survey of the 430 elevators across all CHA buildings revealed that 250 of them weren't operating. After a nine month investigation, the FBI charged six CHA maintenance workers with proliferating millions of dollars worth of paint, floor tiles and roofing materials. Byrne fired Swibel only after HUD threatened to withhold federal funding to the city if she retained him. In his place, she installed her former campaign manager. At the same time, she also expanded the CHA's board from five to seven members and appointed three white commissioners, changing the governing board from majority black to majority white. In 1983, after Byrne was voted out of office, her husband said he just so happened to bump into a picture from one of the Cabrini-Green Little League teams he coached. Quote, hey, Mr. J, are you going to be running the team? End quote, the boy asked. Quote, no, Lefty, we got beat, you know, end quote. I think the thing that stands out from that last paragraph, from that last sentence was how their the relationship that they had with Cabrini Green, the mayor and her husband, was conditioned, conditioned on them being in this political office and her being the mayor. It wasn't something that was done out of a genuine care and empathy for these people. It was something that was done for political advantageousness. I think something else that's important to point out is, uh, is the, the regularity in which black people have been disenfranchised and how that has led to how that, and how that continuing disenfranchisement leads to disillusionment. And so throughout the, time that this woman was mayor she repeatedly removed black people from offices and put white people into offices uh she repeatedly instead of and and no matter what benefits came from her living inside of cabrini green the truth of the matter is is that if she wanted those things to be done she could have got those things done without her positioning herself to live in cabrini green and And again, that was something that she did to live there for political advantageous reasons. And she didn't even live there for the extent. She said that as long as she was mayor, she would have a a place at Cabrini Green. And she stayed there for 25 days. She had activists and protesters arrested while she was there at Cabrini Green. Uh, Instead of trying to empower the people who was who were already living there, she came in trying to. Uh, attain power from these people who were living there, trying to make herself more powerful uh, from the people who, from these vulnerable people who were living there. And I think another thing that's important to point out is the, the conditions that the people in Cabrini Green were living in. And again, even though we're, this is something that is taking a specific look at Cabrini Green, it was pointed out here in this chapter too, that there were other public housing areas in Chicago that, needed assistance as well that we're dealing with some of the same substandard conditions the same substandard uh living experiences that were going on in cabrini green and so i think that one of the things that should be pointed out as we read this or as we dissect this is that this is a a a pattern that has gone on in public housing for decades or for for a century at this point public housing has been in existence for a, a over a century or around a century at this point all over America. So even though this may not be speaking about public housing and where you're from, you can still sort of 
interject or inter, I don't know if interject is the right word. You can still sort of take some of these, uh, take some of these events and look at them through the microscope of of where you're from and where you live at. And so when you when they talk about a survey of 430 elevators across all CHA buildings, which that's not just Cabrini Green and 250 of them didn't work. That's over half of them didn't work when they when it, uh, six maintenance workers uh, millions were arrested because of pilfering millions of dollars worth of paint, floor tiles and roofing materials. Uh, uh, the And HUD threatened to withhold federal funding if they didn't fire the man that was in charge of the CHA. And so all of those things, again, as we were pointing out here, it goes to a lack of care, of a lack of empathy for the people who live in these situations. And that is what exasperates these living conditions. That is what breeds the, the crime and breeds the violence that is in these areas. It's because of a lack of caring. It's, and that is the main difference between a, a the conditions in a poor neighborhood and the conditions in a middle class neighborhood or a high class neighborhood is simply the amount of care throughout time that has went into keeping up with that neighborhood. And the main thing and one of the main things that has to be pointed out is even though that that lack of care and that lack of empathy is there because these people are poor before that, before just being because these people are poor, it was because these people are black. It's because these are people of color. And that is why they are being marginalized and subjugated like this. Dolores Wilson. Like other tenants at Cabrini Green, Dolores Wilson watched warily as Burns time at 1150 through 1160 North Sedgwick came and went. Her sons were harassed as they walked to work and returned home. Her two-door red Chevy, a gift from her son Michael, was towed and lost forever amid the mayor's wholesale cleanup. At work, her colleagues were so tuned in to Cabrini Green that they'd ask her about every violent event that had been reported in the news. Quote, Oh, Dolores, are you okay? What was all that shooting about last night at Cabrini Green? End quote. She hadn't heard any gunfire. If there was a shooting on Chicago Avenue, how could she hear from her building a half mile north on Division Street? Now, crimes committed anywhere on the near north side, two or three miles away, were being identified as occurring near Cabrini Green. Quote, if you stubbed your toe at Cabrini Green, it was in the news. End quote, Dolores complained. Her youngest brother was so spooked that he refused to visit her. Quote, don't you read the papers, Dolores? End quote, he beseeched her. Quote, they're talking about how many people are getting killed at Cabrini Green. End quote. He worked at Mother's a tavern with live music and a white clientele, a short walk due east of 1230 North Burling on Division and Dearborn Street. One night after his shift, Dolores' brother stepped out of the Gold Coast bar and three white guys jumped him, knocking out two of his teeth. It wasn't exactly funny to Dolores, but she definitely brought up the incident to her brother whenever she had the chance. Quote, you said you're not going to visit me. I have my teeth. My family has their teeth. You're afraid to visit me because of what you read in the paper? Well, I'm not going to visit you from what I see happening to you, end quote. Hubert Wilson was promoted from assistant head janitor in their building to head janitor. He was now on call 24 hours a day, and they moved from the 14th floor to a unit on the 6th floor. In case of an emergency, he had to be closer to everything. Their monthly rent, 25% of their adjusted gross income, had been among the highest at Cabrini Green. Most residents paid well under $100, but the new position included the benefit of a rent-free apartment. Dolores says she felt like a billionaire. 
that could keep their whole paychecks. She bought herself an extra pair of shoes and spruced up their apartment. Quote, I had all my interior decorating going, end quote, Dolores said. The kitchen was impeccable with a shiny stainless steel microwave, a yellow towel backsplash, and a countertop lined with porcelain jars and decorative kettles. And they even had extra room. Chi-Chi, who worked for Otis Elevator and was married with a child, bought a house from one of his co-workers on the south side. Michael got a job replacing furniture upholstery and, and moved his wife into the Cabrini Row houses. Although Hubert now had a staff of guys under him, he refused to sit at a table with a pen. He liked physical work, and he still woke early to pull the garbage or run the compactors. The other janitors called him, quote, old man, end quote, even though he wasn't much older than many of them. One morning, two weeks after Burns' Easter festival, Hubert woke up with a bout of diarrhea. Dolores says she'd stay home to take care of him, but he shooed her off. He'd be fine. He didn't want to miss work. And since he was going to work, so should she. Then, like every day over the past 35 years, they kissed and traded I love yous. Early that afternoon, he phoned the water department to tell Dolores he felt ill again. He was going home. He'd eat some crackers and take a nap. When Dolores returned to the apartment that evening, she saw he was sleeping. Quietly, she warmed up leftovers so food would be ready for him when he awoke. Her daughter-in-law stopped by and Dolores sent her to the bedroom to check on Hubert. She came running back into the kitchen. Quote, I think daddy's dead, end quote, she cried. When the paramedics arrived, they made everyone leave the bedroom. Dolores had put her fingers on the nerve in Hubert's neck. She thought she felt a pulse. But her own heart was pounding so hard it was difficult to tell. Hubert didn't look any different than he normally did as he slept. The paramedics finally came out of the bedroom, wheeling Hubert on a cart, a respirator in his mouth. Dolores stood to reach for his hand. Was he going to be all right? Could she ride with him in the ambulance? One of the paramedics pulled her aside. Quote, I have to tell you that your husband is dead, end quote, she said. Quote, we had to bring him out that way so people wouldn't snatch at the body and scream. You know how people do, end quote. Dolores took a short bereavement leave from work. When she returned to the water department, she told her co-workers that she didn't believe what the doctor said about the diarrhea, diarrhea putting too much strain on Hubert's heart. She was pretty sure the paramedics killed her husband. It was an accusation delivered, as was her way. As a mouth twisted aside, her voice remaining a trillion soprano. Her colleagues no doubt missed the simmering rage. Quote, oh, Dolores, end quote, they assured her, quote, no doctor would ever lie to you, end quote. But Dolores was, if anything, pragmatic. She didn't shut down because of a long list of perceived wrongs. She stayed busy at work and at home. She was a 52-year-old widow, and in 1981, she had been living at Cabrini Green almost half her life. She was soon offered the chance to leave Cabrini. Her grandmother, the one who moved around for much of her young life, had settled down in Inglewood on Chicago's south side. She bought a corner house with a coach house behind it where she let four men who'd been homeless live rent-free. When she passed away, the property went to Dolores' mother, and when she died, Dolores' brother was named the executor. But he already had a house of his own, and their sister Connie had become an evangelist and given up on worldly possessions, selling off her furniture and quitting her job at the post office. The family assumed Dolores would take it. This was her opportunity to get out of public housing once and for all. She could own a place of her own, but she wasn't interested. 
She felt settled at Cabrini Green. She told her brother, quote, I'm in the projects, but that's my home. I love my home just like you love your home, end quote. The property went to her grandmother's church on the same street, and the church kicked out the squatters, demolished the two buildings, and turned it all into a parking lot. And that brings us to the end of part one of Cabrini of High Risers, Cabrini Green and the Fate of Public Housing by Ben Austin. Uh, the next part, part two, is Cabrini Green, Harlem Watts Jackson is what it's entitled. And I think we'll end this episode here a little shorter than most of our uh, Ralph for Reading Daily episodes. But I uh, will end this so that way we can start the next episode fresh on the new part and on the next chapter. Uh, so I want to thank people for reading along and listening along. And if you haven't listened to previous episodes of Ralph for Reading Daily, please go back and listen to those previous episodes of Ralph for Reading Daily. And we'll be back tomorrow with a new episode. Start part, starting part two of High Risers.